0: All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to uh, the prophet Zechariah. Last week, we were in chapter 4, talking about days of small things. Now we're going to go to chapter 12 in this series of teachings on the advent of Messiah. This will be part 3. Part 1, we talked about when God says it, he does it. He keeps his word, he preserves his word, and messianic prophecy is proof that he did in Jesus Christ at his first advent, and that he will again at his second advent. Last week we talked about days and things, how God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and how that we shouldn't despise days of small things because they can affect the course of history, and how... In the genealogies of Jesus Christ, we see that evidence time and time again. What God did with Abraham in giving him seed in his old age, He did at least four more times in the genealogy of Christ. There were seemingly insignificant women in that genealogy. Their actions in a, in a quiet corner in the land of Israel in the ancient Near East would uh, literally affect the course of the world. So who is it that despises the day of small things? Or minimizes how God may use us. Because when He uses us, it's not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit. But I want to go to Zechariah chapter 12 this morning. We've already talked a little bit about the shepherds. And if you'll be patient with me, we'll get there. Um, indulge me this morning. This is a very interesting message and I'll, I'll have to finish it. Or it's, it's going to mess up the flow for the next couple of weeks. But I want to look at a passage in Zechariah chapter 12. Here we have a very important messianic prophecy uh, that is very clear that Messiah is not just a son of David. Okay? He's not just uh, a son of Abraham. He is God in human flesh. This is the prophecy of the last days. In verse 9 of chapter 12, it shall come to pass in that day, that is the last days just prior to Messiah's second coming, that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So the nations are gathered against Jerusalem to finally eradicate her, what is called Armageddon. And God says that He will destroy these nations. And how so will He do it? Verse 10 In addition to destroying those nations that come against Jerusalem, He will also pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. So in that last moment, God's grace would be upon the house of David and the people of Jerusalem who are facing utter ruin. And they, that is the house of David... And the people of Jerusalem shall look upon Me whom they have pierced. God is saying, you will one day look upon Me, the one you pierced. In the Hebrew language, there's no other way to translate that. Some of your modern Bibles start messing with the deity of Christ here and they say they will look upon whom they have pierced. It's not what it says in the Hebrew. It's unquestionably the pronoun me. "...they will look upon Me whom they have pierced." So Messiah here is God. "...and they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for His only Son." So not only will these the house of David and the people of Jerusalem realize that Messiah is God, but they will also mourn because He was also one of their sons. "...and they will mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son." And shall be in bitterness or regret for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadradrimon in the valley of Megiddon. And the land shall mourn every family apart. The family of the house of David apart. The family of the house of Nathan apart. And their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Shimei apart, and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. So what we're being told here is in a day when Israel faces its utter ruin, and God seeks to destroy those nations that come against her, there's going to be an awakening In the house of David and amongst the inhabitants of Jerusalem that remain, an awakening, a realization that the one who was pierced was their Messiah. And their Messiah was God. And he was a son of Israel. What have we done? There's a recognition and a mourning. What have we done all these centuries? He is the Messiah. And it tells us here that all the families in the land that remain will mourn. Mourn over their foolishness. Mourn over their sin. A realization that Hosea says must happen before Messiah can return. And I find it very interesting here that in this context, four families are mentioned in connection with the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Four families in addition, to, in addition to the people left in the city are going to realize that Jesus is the Messiah toward the end of the tribulation. We're told the house of David and the house of Nathan. We're told the house of Levi and the family of Shimei. What do these names mean? What does it mean, every family apart? And what does this have to do with the first advent of Christ? Remember, in messianic prophecy, anytime the first advent is, is uh, acknowledged or prophesied, it's always tied to the second advent. Zechariah the prophet wrote in the days when the remnant had returned from Babylon, in the days when the foundation of the temple and the second temple had been rebuilt. He was around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai the prophet. Haggai had said that Messiah would come, the desire of all nations, and enter into this second temple. That would make the glory of the second temple surpass that of Solomon. We know that Jesus was taken to the temple to be circumcised when he was uh, on, on the eighth day. We know that Jesus was found teaching in the temple when he was 12 years old. We know that Jesus cleansed that temple twice. So that glory was greater than Solomon's. This is the context in which Zechariah wrote. When the remnant had returned under a governor by the name of Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua, the two who prefigured the two witnesses in Revelation that we talked about. And if we study the life and person of Zerubbabel in the genealogy of Christ, we'll see that he is a type of the Messiah in The messianic line. That's why the branch that that God would raise up is spoken of in that context there earlier in the book. This was around 520 BC when Zechariah the prophet wrote. It was about 16 years, more than 16 years, after King Cyrus gave the decree and the permission for the Jews to return and rebuild the temple. And it was just a few years before the temple was finished. So we're in the construction of the temple when these prophecies are given, both what we looked at last week and this prophecy. God tells the people in Zerubbabel's day that there's coming a day when the house of David, who very much remained even after the captivities, would look upon Me whom they have pierced... The Messiah is God, and He's the Son that was given to Israel. God's Word is consistent. Why are these four families mentioned here? And what significance would they be in Zerubbabel's day? And what significance we have to the people to whom God chose to announce the birth of Christ? I want to go back to the genealogies that we started last week. If you've got this little genealogy and you were able to look at it, you might be able to follow along. I've got some illustrations here that I hope will help you this morning. Remember, Matthew chapter 1 traces the ancestry of Jesus from Abraham through David down to Joseph. It's the legal Messianic line. And it speaks of so-and-so begat, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob. That word begat means these were descendants through birth, through straight birth. There was no uh, son-in-laws or father-in-laws or anything like that. It's straight descendancy. Luke chapter 3, as we look at it, is tracing the ancestry of Jesus not just back to David and Abraham, but all the way back to Adam, who was the Son of God. It's the ancestry of the second Adam back through the first Adam to God. And it goes through Mary's line. So Joseph is spoken of not as being begotten by Heli, son of Heli, was the son of, was the son of, You see, in that sense, Jamie's father, Jim, he didn't begat me, but I'm his son. I'm his son-in-law. And that's what's considered to be in Jewish genealogy. So that's the difference there. Two genealogies, two ancestries that trace Jesus back to David and Abraham, not only through Joseph, who was supposed to be His Father, the legal messianic line, but also through Mary, His bloodline. We've also got a strange couple of verses in 1st Chronicles that shed some light here. If we look at Matthew chapter 1, we come down to the days of the Babylonian captivity. Jeconias, who was a grandson of King Josiah that was elevated to the position of a son. Just like Jacob took Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and elevated them to the place of sonship so that they were two different tribes. There wasn't a tribe of Joseph. There was a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. A grandson was elevated to sonship. Josiah appointed him to be king. The people didn't accept it for ten years. There was some good in him. He was carried off to Babylon even though his father was, died during the, the siege and was thrown over the wall and his uncle was eventually killed. He was carried off to Babylon, this Jeconias or Coniah or Jehoiachin. It's all the same person. And we're told in Matthew that Jeconias begat Salathiel, Salathiel begat Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begat Abiud all the way down to Joseph. Luke chapter 3, however, we're told that, that Salathiel was the son of Neri. That Neri was the father of Salathiel, the father of Zerubbabel, the father of Rasa, the father of Joanna, down to Mary. But when we get over to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, we're told that Jeconias had six sons, and then he had two others, Salathiel and Pedaiah. And that Zerubbabel is not the son of Salathiel, but the son of Pedaiah. Zerubbabel also had a brother named Shimei. Zerubbabel had five sons, and we're told he had a daughter, Shelamith, their sister. Never anywhere in the Davidic line in Chronicles is a woman ever mentioned except in this one spot. So we've obviously got a daughter that was elevated to the position of a son. So when we put these three genealogies together, we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is going on? Is the Scripture full of contradictions? I mean, it's already told us in one place that Jeconias was 8 years old when he became king, and then in another, he was 18 years old. And people foolishly think, well, the Hebrew scribe accidentally left the number 1 off when he copied, never realizing that Hebrews don't use numerals. Numbers are letters, they're spelled out. So 8 and 18 don't look anything alike. It's not a situation where somebody forgot to add the 1. But look at history, and we look at who God appointed versus who man appointed, there's no contradiction whatsoever. When we look at this on the surface, we could easily say, well hey, maybe this Salathiel and this Zerubbabel are different. Maybe there was one said in Matthew and one said in Luke and there's a whole lot more generations in Luke, so it's probably not the same people. Well, I guess that's the case. But when we look at Messianic prophecy and we look at the families that are mentioned here, it's my opinion that these are the same people. Not only are these the same, but this is the same. And there's no contradiction. In fact, the answer to the puzzle lies within this prophecy. How in the world can both Jeconias and Neri be the father of Salathiel? How can both Salathiel and Pediah be the father of Zerubbabel? How can Zerubbabel be the father of two sons according to these genealogies not mentioned in 1 Chronicles amongst his five? And did the royal line of David via Solomon actually cross With the bloodline of David through Nathan in Zerubbabel's day, just like it did when Mary and Joseph came together. In the days in which Jerusalem was governor, Messiah was prophesied, I mean, in which Zerubbabel was governor, Messiah was prophesied throughout Zechariah, and we're told that when Israel recognizes who Messiah is, that two of the families who will especially be in mourning, especially be under conviction, would be the house of David and the house of Nathan. The house of David legally went through Solomon, but Nathan was also a son of David from Bathsheba. So in Zerubbabel's day, the house of Nathan and the house of David were both remaining, were both prominent, and are both tied to Messiah. Messiah. We know they were tied to Messiah in the genealogies of the New Testament, but this would have had no significance in Zerubbabel's day unless they were also tied to him. Every family apart would mourn. Look at King Jehoiachin, the grandson of Josiah, the righteous king. He was carried off to Babylon. He reigned for three months when when he was finally put on the throne. After his father died, he reigned for three months, and then he was carried off to Babylon. And the scriptures tell us that he was imprisoned there for 37 years. And in his 37th year of captivity, we don't know if it was in a jail cell. it was probably some sort of a house arrest, like what Paul did in, what Paul was under in Rome. But in the 37th year of his captivity, the king of Babylon, Evil Merodach, lifted up Jehoiachin's head and gave him a place at the royal table until his death. Jehoiachin would have been captured and carried off when he was 18 years old. And he was elevated to the Babylonian king's table, released when he was 55 years old. When you look at genealogies in the Old Testament, No sons are mentioned of Jehoiachin when he is taken captive. When he is taken captive, it talks about his wives and the princes and things being taken captive with him. But it doesn't mention any sons. Later, when his uncle is killed by Nebuchadnezzar, his sons are killed as well. But Jehoiachin had no sons when he was taken captive. Just wives and just princes who would have been his cousins and relatives. So how is it that he eventually had sons? Well, he must have had them in his captivity. He was captive for 37 years. And in this time of captivity when many fathers of houses and different lines were eradicated and killed in the sieges and the wars and things, and through the carrying off to Babylon, God acted to miraculously preserve his line. If we look at Matthew, Luke, and Chronicles, They're easily reconciled if one of his wives or perhaps a wife he took while in captivity was a widowed woman of appropriate status who was a daughter of Neri in the house of Nathan, descended from David. These are easily reconciled. If you look at this genealogy I kind of did down here, the red would indicate the bloodline of David. The blue would indicate the royal legal line of David through the kings. And then this black right here would would symbolize the tribe of Levi. And we'll talk about that in a little while. But these these things are easily reconciled. How is it that Salathiel could be a a son of both Jeconias and Neri? Well, it's very simple. When 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 King Jehoiachin was carried off to Babylon, he took a widowed wife of a deceased husband. And these had a child. This widowed wife would have been a daughter of Neri, of the bloodline of David. It would make sense in the captivity that in order to preserve the line of David, if if there were widows and things who were widowed because of the captivity, that those who remained would take wives to preserve the bloodline. And so it's my opinion that this king took a wife who was widowed, a daughter of Neri, the bloodline of David. She was widowed because her husband was killed in the sieges and the wars. And she not only was a widow, she was a widow with a child. A widow with a child. She had a son by her deceased husband when Jeconias took her to wife. And that son's name was peta By Jewish custom, when a son was adopted, he was often numbered amongst the natural sons. So Jeconias would have adopted him and showed him kindness, numbering him amongst his sons. We see this in the Old Testament numerous times. Did Pharaoh number as if he was one of his sons? Moses. Moses was counted a son of Pharaoh. Turn to Esther chapter 2. Now I've told you in our study of Revelation that we've touched on every book in the Bible. I thought we were still waiting to hit Song of Solomon, but in listening to some of the old messages, we've done it already. And we have every book of the Bible. It's rare that we go to Esther, but we're going to do it today. Look at Esther chapter 2 verse 7. It's talking about Mordecai. He was carried away with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away. So not only was Jehoiachin carried captive, but Mordecai was. Mordecai was a descendant of... uh, was related to Saul. Mordecai was a descendant of Shimei, who was the the Benjamite who came out and cursed David. Remember when when Absalom had, had, had driven him away? Uh, but Mordecai comes from that stock, but he was taken captive. This is the same time this is happening with Jehoiachim. It says in verse 7 of chapter 2, And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful. Whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her for his own daughter." And then if we look at verse 15, Now in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihiel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter. So in this very time period, we had a young woman whose father and mother were dead, and a relative in kindness took her for his own daughter. When we look and compare the genealogies, I believe that's exactly what Jehoiachin did. He showed kindness... And as a result of that kindness, the line continued and his head was lifted up and he was treated well. Nothing uncommon. Now, I'm not going to act like this is dogmatic here. But the Bible tells us to study the Scriptures. in that it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. And it's the glory of kings to search it out. These things make sense to me. And if we approach the Scripture with the attitude that this is God's Word and there is no contradiction, it's amazing the things that will be revealed. So how is it that these can be related? How do we see Matthew and Luke coming together with these same individuals? It begins with a marriage in captivity to a widowed wife who had a son, and that son, through the kindness of his stepfather, was elevated to sonship. We're told in Matthew that Jeconias begat Salathiel. We're told in Luke 3 that Salathiel was the son of Neri. Well, how could he be begotten of Jeconias and also be the son of another man? It's very simple. Neri wasn't his father, it was his grandfather through his mother. And in Jewish custom, I am not only the son of Paul Boyd, I'm the son of Jesse Laney Boyd. I'm the son of his father, Jesse Laney Boyd. It's the way it works. So, Salathio was begotten by Jeconias, he was the son of Neri, he was the grandson of Neri through his mother. When Jeconias took this widowed wife who already had a son, they had a child whose name was Salathiel. Now, we're told that in both of these New Testament genealogies that Salathiel is the father of Zerubbabel who would have been the governor in the days that Zechariah wrote. But in a little passage in 1 Chronicles 3, we're told that Jeconias the father of Salathiel was also the father of Pediah, and that Pediah was the father of Zerubbabel. So how can Zerubbabel have two fathers? Do you remember the prophecies that we read from Jeremiah last week about the judgment that would come upon not only Jehoiakim, but Jeconias and how God would render him childless and no man of his seed would prosper on the throne of David? That's over in Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah 22 verse 30. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man, that is Coniah, Jeconiah, childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. He never prospered. He was in captivity and he was lifted up by the king of Babylon, and ate at the king of Babylon's table, not at his own table. For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Jerusalem. Well, how is it that Zerubbabel is the son of Selathiel, and yet the son of Pedadiah, and yet Selathiel is one that God says would not prosper, but would be childless. There's a very easy answer to this question. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22. I'm sorry, chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. If brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her for him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears, that is, of her husband's brother, shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So if you had a brother who died with no child, then his brother had a responsibility of going in and raising up seed to him. And the firstborn child that he would begat with his, bro- his dead brother's wife, would be his dead brother's seeds, seed. Any subsequent children would be his. When we consider this leveret marriage that we've already seen in the line of Christ with Boaz and Ruth, and when we consider that King Jehoiachin showed kindness unto a widowed woman with a child, a stepson who was elevated to the position of a son, And that this seed of Jehoiachin would be childless, it becomes evident to me that a stepson remembered the kindness that his father, his stepfather showed toward him and turned and reciprocated it upon his brother who died childless. These genealogies are reconciled when we consider that Salathiel died literally in fulfillment of the prophecy. He took a wife and died, probably somehow connected with the captivities, and Jehoiachin was literally childless, just as the prophecy said. He had no children. Therefore, his half-brother, elevated to the position of a brother, was obedient to the Scriptures, and took Salathiel's wife and raised up seed to his dead brother, so that their firstborn, Zerubbabel, though the blood of Pediah, would have been the legal heir of Salathiel and the legal heir of the divine throne. So therefore, when we consider leveret marriage, Zerubbabel is both the son of Salathiel, legally, the son of Pedaiah, Salathiel's half-brother, by blood. And when Levirate marriage took place, that son was literally considered in records to be the seed of the deceased. Therefore, when we look at Matthew and Luke, it makes perfect sense that this pediah is not mentioned. Because that son, Zerubbabel, was legally the son of Salathiel via leveret marriage. So what we see, is that the legal line of David, the blue, continues from Jeconias via leveret marriage even though the bloodline ends. The bloodline of David through Jeconias ends at Salathiel, thus fulfilling the prophecy in Jeremiah. But the legal line continues because a half-brother who was of the bloodline of David performed the duty of a leveret brother and raised up a seed to the one whom had died. When you go to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, Zerubbabel was mentioned many times as the son of Shealtiel or Salathiel, And that's logical because that's the way it was reckoned. So not only did levirate marriage take place in Boaz and Ruth's day, it took place in the days of Zerubbabel. Now we're told here in 1st Chronicles chapter 3 That Zerubbabel had five sons, and he had a daughter, their sister. But when we look at the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, we're told that Zerubbabel had a son, Abiud, that Zerubbabel had a son, Rasa, and Rasa had a son, Joanna. But these aren't mentioned in 1 Chronicles 3. So what in the world is going on here? It's very interesting. Turn to 1 Chronicles 3. 1 Chronicles 3, verse 17. Actually, let's start at verse 15. And the sons of Josiah were the firstborn, Johanan, the second, Jehoiakim, the third, Zedekiah, the first, Shalom. uh, Johanan was also called Jehoahaz. That's who the people made king when Josiah died. And the sons of Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, or Jehoi his son, Zedekiah his son, and the sons of Jeconiah, Asser, Salathiel, his son, Malkirim also, and Pedaiah, and Shinazar, Jecomiah, Hoshamah, and Nedabiah. And the sons of Pedaiah were Zerubbabel and Shimei. And the sons of Jer- Zerubbabel Meshulam, Hananiah, and Shilamith, their sister, and Hashubah, and Ohel, and Berechiah, and Hasadiah, and Jusha, Jushab-Hesed, five. So we have five sons and a sister mentioned here, but there's no Abiud, there's no Rasa, there's no Joanna. What's going on? There was obviously Leveret marriage there, but I find it interesting that The only place in Chronicles where we have reference to a woman in the Davidic line is right here. Zerubbabel had a daughter, a Shelamith, their sister. The only reason this would be mentioned here is if for some reason, because of the captivity and that people had died or had not returned to the land, a daughter was elevated to the position of sonship. We have this In the book, I believe this takes place in the Torah and in Joshua, when some daughters, I believe it's Manasseh, are elevated because there are no male descendants. For whatever reason, Zerubbabel elevated his daughter to the position of a son. Thus, her name is included here amongst her brothers. The only place in Chronicles. So what is going on? How in the world can Zerubbabel be the father of people in these New Testament genealogies that aren't even mentioned here? What could have happened? It's my opinion that Zerubbabel, who was both the royal line of David via Leveret marriage and the bloodline of David from Nathan, had a daughter. daughter took a husband. That husband's name was Rasa mentioned here in Luke. So we've already had son-in-laws mentioned in Luke. Joseph is mentioned as the son of Heli. We know he's a son-in-law. If you go back far enough, there's a Canaan mentioned as the son of Arphaxad that doesn't show up anywhere in the book of Genesis. That was obviously a son-in-law that was meant to preserve seed because Arphaxad only had a daughter. So it would make sense, it doesn't seem illogical that Rasa would be another son-in-law. married this daughter of Zerubbabel and therefore Zerubbabel is the father-in-law of Rasa. Rasa is the son or son-in-law of Zerubbabel. That's what Luke 3 is referencing. This daughter of Zerubbabel and Rasa would have had children. These children, through their mother, elevated to the sonship by Zerubbabel would have continued not only the royal line, but also the bloodline of King David. One of those children was Abiud. So Abiud would be the grandson of Zerubbabel. It would be Zerubbabel begat him because it was his grandson. And then Joanna would be the grandson of Zerubbabel. So these two names in Matthew and Luke are grandchildren, and Rasa would be a... son-in-law. And if we trace the rest of the genealogy down, we'll see that through Abiad the royal line and the bloodline continued down to Joseph. And at Joseph, the bloodline ended because there was no blood that went between Joseph and Jesus. So the bloodline ended, but the legal royal line continued. Through this Joanna, the bloodline continued through Mary, and it was via Mary that the bloodline came to Jesus. So all of this came together in Jesus the Messiah. Obviously, Rasa is a son-in-law in Luke 3 that married the daughter of Zerubbabel. And they fathered two sons that gave rise both to Joseph and Mary. In Matthew chapter 1, Zerubbabel is the grandfather of Abiud. Quite naturally, a mother, a father who is not legally of David's bloodline, would not be listed. That's why kings Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah are not mentioned. Jehoram, the great-great-grandfather of Uzziah. It's Jehoram, who's the great-great-grandfather, who begat Uzziah, the next one in line, because those kings were more the blood of Ahab than they were the blood of David. There is consistency in each genealogy. And God does not lie. The Messianic line was preserved. First Chronicles 3 is the key that unlocks the puzzle. And it shows us that the families of David, when it says the house of David in Zechariah 12, it's talking about the royal house through Solomon. The house of David, the legal line, and Nathan, the bloodline, were both relevant in Zerubbabel's day. Because in Zerubbabel, the governor, those houses crossed. That's why that prophecy would have had so significance to the people living at that time. Why would the house of David and the house of Nathan be especially shocked and especially in mourning when they realized their Messiah? It's because Messiah came through them. And he came through that both of them because of what took place in Zerubbabel's day. With a widowed wife being shown kindness. A half-brother fulfilling his duties to raise up seed to his dead brother. Remembering kindness shown toward him by his stepfather. By a governor lifting up a daughter to be numbered amongst his sons. All of these things resulted in the house of David and the house of Nathan having special significance with relationship to the Messiah. But those aren't the only houses mentioned here. It doesn't only tell us that the house of David apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, but the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart the family of shimei apart and their wives apart what do the houses of levi and who in the world is shimei have to do with this the first time we see the name shimei in scripture is in numbers chapter 3 verse 18 he is a grandson of levi he's a father of gersh i mean he's the son of gershon who's the son of Levi. So the very first Shimei we see in the Scriptures is from the tribe of Levi. And he was of the Gershonites. If we look at the responsibilities that the sons of Levi had, the Gershonites did the things related to the outside of the tabernacle. They took care of the outer coverings, the outer court, the things related to the outside of the tabernacle. Shimei, the grandson of Levi, was of the Gershonites and would have fathered the Gershonites that descended all the way down through King David's day even into the days of Zerubbabel here. There's a famous Shimei in the Scriptures. He was a Benjamite who cursed David. Mordecai was descended from him who took Esther to be his daughter. He eventually repented when David came back to Jerusalem. David forgave him And Solomon told him as long as he stayed in the city, his life would be preserved after David was dead. But then Shimei disregarded that royal commandment and left to chase down a servant. And so he was executed for disobeying the law. We go to 1 Chronicles 3. There's a Shimei who was a Levite that was in a position of leadership in the temple over the dedicated things and over the treasury. This was in the time, uh, I believe, uh, of Hezekiah. This is actually 2 Chronicles 31, I'm sorry. 2 Chronicles 31, he was a Levite who was in a place of leadership in the temple. And then if we turn to Ezra chapter 10, we'll find another Shimei who was a Levite. Now Ezra chapter 10 would have been in these days. It would have been in the days of Zerubbabel. There were people in the land who, whether their natural wives had died in the captivity, who who knows, had taken strange wives from the land of Canaan that weren't Jews, that were leading them astray spiritually and leading them into idolatry, spiritual fornication against God, just like happened with Solomon. And Ezra rebuked the people and told them they needed to put away these strange wives who were committing spiritual fornication. You know, the Bible always gave a biblical grounds of divorce. It was called fornication. Deuteronomy calls it uncleanness. That word in Hebrew means nakedness. Uncleanness. When Jesus dealt with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19, and they said, Jesus, is it okay to put away our wives for every cause? They weren't citing the law of Moses. They were citing the Talmuds or the commentaries on the law of Moses where the rabbis had taken something very specific that Moses said and made it into all of these other reasons. Well, uncleanness could mean she didn't wash the dishes properly. Uncleanness could mean she's no longer pretty in my eyes. Uncleanness could mean all these things that it never meant according to Moses. Typical rabbinic commentary. Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees and the Talmuds, not the law of Moses. And when He restated the Moses law, He said, If a man put away his wife, except it be for fornication, that is the uncleanness, then he's committed adultery. Jesus allowed for divorce just like Moses did because of uncleanness, because of fornication. But remember, my friends, there's two types of fornication. There's physical fornication and there's spiritual fornication. Spiritual fornication is what leads you to turn away from God and to worship other gods. And in the days of Ezra, there were people in the land, including a Shimei of the house of Levi, who had taken strange wives and those wives had committed spiritual fornication and were leading these husbands, descendants of Jacob, to turn from God. And Ezra inciting the Mosaic law, told them to put away their wives for this spiritual fornication. To put away their wives and to take wives of the people of Israel and to follow the true God. And these people that were being rebuked in Ezra chapter 10 were told there was a Shimei. Ezra chapter 10, verse 23 Ezra 10.23, also of the Levites, Jezebel and Shimei. So there's a Shimei in the days of Zerubbabel. That's a Levite that had taken a strange wife. And when these men put away their wives and took wives who feared God of the house of Israel, they were obedient. And God rewarded it. So Shimei is not only descended from Levi, and it had to do with responsibilities related to the outside of the tabernacle. There was a Shimei in the days of Zerubbabel that was a Levite who had taken a strange wife her away and took another wife. We also see that there are related uh, to the sons of uh, Asaph came through Shimei. Asaph was descended from Gershon, the Gershonites. And they were used in the day of Hezekiah to cleanse the temple. They wrote a lot of songs. There's a lot of psalms that were written by the sons of Asaph. So Shimei, from its first use, although there are other Shimeis, there's the Benjamite, there's some that were from Simeon, but mostly is related or connected to Levi. And it's listed with Levi here in Zechariah 12. So there are four families that are important when Zechariah prophesies. David and Nathan, Levi and Shimei. And we know there's a Shimei in the days that this took place that put away a strange wife and took a legitimate wife that wouldn't lead him to spiritual fornication. Would the prophet here in this context be referencing an obscure grandson of Levi many 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 generations back or would he be referencing a known person in his day that was somehow connected to Levi we're told in first chronicles chapter 3 that this pedaiah the stepbrother of solalia that raised up his firstborn was zerubbabel that became leg- legally solalia's son and the royal line continued but he also had another son that would have been his. The second son that he had with this uh, wife of Salathiel would have been his and that son's name was Shimei. We don't know who Pedaiah's father was. Shimei would have descended through there and he would have been alive at this time. Is this the Shimei that Ezra references as a Levite? I believe so. I believe so. So what we have is Shimei of Levi, a brother of Zerubbabel, who is legally of David. This Shimei would have been partly of David's line through Nathan, but he's called a Levite. So he had to come from Levi somehow. He was a son of Nathan via his grandmother, but who was his deceased grandfather? It makes sense to me that this widowed wife That Jehoiachin took to be his wife had been married to a descendant of Levi. And so Pediah was the son of a Levite who raised up a son in his brother's stead, but also had a son whose grandfather would have been of Levi. He put away a strange wife and would have taken up a legitimate wife according to what Ezra commanded the people to do in chapter 10. So it makes sense that he would have taken a wife of his father's family. So his grandfather would have been of Levi, descended down through the Gershonites, and when he put away his strange wife, he would have taken a wife. It makes sense to me that would have been of the tribe of Levi in Zerubbabel's day. And they would have had a child, this Rasa, who would have married into Zerubbabel with his daughter, elevated to the position of a son, And this Rasa would have fathered these two that descended to Joseph and Mary. So what we see here is the tribe of Levi coming near in the days of Zerubbabel and touching the Messianic line. And it does so through this Shimei. Therefore, Shimei is connected with Levi in Zechariah chapter 12 and these four families in particular are related to Messiah. David... Nathan, Levi, and Shimei. In this Shimei of Zerubbabel's day, the line of Levi came and touched. It came near and touched the Messianic line. Thus, these four families had a special significance in the mourning of Messiah as mourning for their only son. The same thing happens with Jesus as happened with Zerubbabel. David via Solomon and David via Nathan cross at Mary and Joseph. And Judah and Levi also cross somehow or come near. We're told that Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was a priest. He was descended from Aaron, a Levite. We're told that Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, was a daughter of Aaron that came from Levi. John the Baptist was a Levite. And yet he was the cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ. How in the world were Mary and Elizabeth related? Elizabeth was obviously older. It's very likely that Mary's mother and Elizabeth were sisters. And that they were descended from Levi. And that Mary's mother married a descendant of David. And therefore, Levi is touching the messianic line in the days of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He's also the priest of Israel. He's the king priest. We're told in Hebrews and we're told in the Psalm Psalm 110, that Messiah is not of the priesthood of Levi. He's of the priesthood of Melchizedek, the eternal priest. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest. Jesus is is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But He's also a priest in the sense that the tribe of Levi touches His genealogy. It did so in the days of Zerubbabel. It did so in Jesus' day. And it makes sense that the tribe of Levi and Shimei's family would mourn Messiah when they recognize who He is as mourning for an only son. Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's interesting to study Him because it says in Hebrews chapter 7 that Melchizedek was the one to whom Abraham went out and paid tithes, the king of Salem, when he came back from rescuing Lot. Um, And it tells us that Levi was in the loins of Abraham. And in a sense, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, a superior priesthood. Verse 3, it describes Melchizedek. It says, He's without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abiding a priest continuously. So in Abraham's day, this Melchizedek was as if he he had no father, as if he had no mother, no descent, no beginning of days. He was an ancient man. His family was as if they weren't there. They were so long gone. It's my opinion that Melchizedek was Shem, the son of Noah. He was the uh, the king of Salem who preserved the worship of the true God. Did you know when you look at the genealogies that Shem died only two years before Abraham died? Shem lived a long time after the flood. He only died two years before Abraham died. And Shem is in the line of Jesus Christ. I believe Shem was Melchizedek and it was as if he had no father, no mother. He was an ancient man. His father and mother were long gone. His descendants didn't even continue past the flood. He was an old man that um, was made like unto the Son of God in that he descended directly from Adam, the Son of God. Very interesting. But Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a king priest. But it's interesting that even the Levitical priesthood, Levi, the son of Jacob, touches the Messianic line. So even Levi could call him a son. Now, we see that these four families are related to Messiah. And when Israel in the land, facing her utter destruction, realizes that Messiah is the one whom they have pierced. It will be the house of David through Solomon, the house of Nathan, all the way down through Mary, Levi, down through here in Shimei, a brother of Zerubbabel that will especially mourn every family apart as if they're mourning for an only son. Now, turn to Luke chapter 2. What in the world does all of this have to do with the shepherds? Who were they? What do they have to do with Zechariah 12, verse 12? Luke chapter 2, verse 8, And they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not, For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day in the city of David is born, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Who are these shepherds? Why were they so close to a town? When you look at rabbinic Judaism, you have the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the Old Testament Scriptures the same 39 books that we believe to be the God. A fact that shocks Israelis when we tell them, your Bible is our Bible. It's 100% the Word of God. You have the Tanakh, the Scriptures. And then you have in rabbinic Judaism what is called the Talmud. The Talmud is made up of two parts, the Mishnas and the Gemara. Basically, the Talmud is what they call the oral law. The rabbis say that at the same time Moses was given the written law, there was an oral law given by God that was passed down orally. And it wasn't actually written down till years later, after the Babylonian captivity, to um, preserve it. And so a lot of times when the Pharisees are attacking Jesus, they're not appealing to the Tanakh, they're appealing to the oral law. Well, the oral law said we can put our wives away for every cause. Jesus said, except it be for fornication. That's what the Tanakh says. But the Talmud is made up of the Mishnas. The Mishnas is the text of the oral law written down. And the Gemara is the commentary by subsequent rabbis on the writing down of this oral law. There is no evidence whatsoever in the scriptures for an oral law. This is a rabbinic invention that happened sometime after the days of Ezra and there's some interesting videos you can watch online at One for Israel ministry of Jewish believers to Jewish people in Israel and it answers a lot of the rabbinic objections to Christ And one of the things they deal with is whether... There's an interesting video on whether or not there was an oral law. There is no biblical evidence for it, but the Pharisees would have appealed to it. And through the Talmud, the oral law, and the commentaries, we see a lot of the uh, cultural elements of Judaism are preserved so that we can understand what the cultural life was in those days. There's also something that the rabbis refer to called the Midrash. Okay, The Talmud is the oral law that has the Mishnahs, the, the oral law itself, and then the commentary on the Mishnahs, the Gemara. The Midrash is the commentaries on the Tanakh. Okay, The Midrash is where we'll rabbi down and wrote commentaries on what they think the Tanakh says. And a lot of times in rabbinic Judaism, the authority is not with the Tanakh, it's with the commentaries on the Tanakh. It's with the oral law. They would say that the oral tradition has more authority than the written Word of God. And you've also got the Targums or the Targumim. The Targumims were commentaries on the Old Testament Scriptures just like the Midrash, but they were written down in the common language of the people. So the Targumims would have come into, uh, into existence around uh, the time of Babylon. They would have been written in Aramaic and other languages. Um, they are uh, accepted as authoritative by Babylonian Jews, and today it's only the Yemeni Jews in Yemen who use it liturgically, but these are commentaries. So that's where the authority is in rabbinic Judaism. The Catholics, in their tradition, stole out everything they had from rabbinic Judaism. It's amazing how religion that ignores the plain word of God for the commentaries is so predictable. That's churchianity today. This is ignored in favor of what some man wrote about it. But it's interesting when we look at the Mishnas, which is the oral law written down. They tell us that in the land of Israel that there was only one place that shepherds were allowed to tend their flocks. That was in the wilderness. Sheep were not allowed to be brought near the towns. Shepherds had to tend their flocks out in the wilderness, except in the case of temple service. So the only time that sheep would graze near a town would be near Jerusalem because the flocks were being used in the temple services. Sacrificial lambs could be kept near to the place of sacrifice in Jerusalem. The fields around Bethlehem, you can go there today. Now, you can't walk straight from those fields to Bethlehem. If you, I mean, to Jerusalem. If you put it in Google Maps, it takes you all the way around because you'd have to walk over the wall into the West Bank and through the West Bank and back over the wall into uh, Israel proper. And so you have to walk all the way around. But in Jesus' day, the fields around Bethlehem were less than five miles, just around five miles as the crow flies from the temple in Bible times. And naturally, these fields were the best spot to keep sheep in the vicinity of Jerusalem. These fields near Bethlehem were not the wilderness. And it would have been culturally taboo for just regular old shepherds to be keeping flocks near Bethlehem. It wouldn't have happened. They were in the wilderness, away from the towns, unless it was sheep used in temple sacrifice. These shepherds in Luke chapter 2 were Levites of the house of Levi. They were Levitical shepherds keeping watch over flocks used in temple service. These Levite, Levitical shepherds would have descended from Levi maybe through Shimei who was of the Gershonites. Remember the Gershonites took care of things related to the outside of the tabernacle. Makes sense that at some point... The descendants of Gershon would continue to minister to things concerning the outside of the temple. One of which would be keeping the temple flocks. It would have made them unclean, so they weren't able to come into the temple, but they had the very important job of inspecting the sheep to make sure they were unblemished. It tells us in Numbers chapter 28, verse 3, Israel was commanded that there was to be a daily burnt offering in the tabernacle, and this would have transferred to the temple, a daily burnt offering two lambs without spot or blemish. They could have no injury, they could have no blemish, were daily to be offered up in the sanctuary for a perpetual burnt offering. Do you realize that this is 720 lambs each year? And then you've got to account for the thousands of lambs used not only in Passover by each family, but also, when families would have a child and, and, and their purification was complete, they would go to the temple when it was circumcised. They'd have the son circumcised and then some days later they would go and offer a lamb. Unless they were poor, they would offer some turtle doves like Mary and Joseph did. But there was a great need in the vicinity of Jerusalem for lambs. And therefore, they would have, been had, they would have had to be kept nearby for temple service. And it would have been a year-round job. Because people were being born all year long. There was the daily sacrifice that went on all year long. In spring there were the Passover lambs, but all year long. When people try to talk about when Christ was born, and they try to make a statement like, Jesus could have never been born on December 25th, because December is winter in Israel. And shepherds never would have been out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks in winter. So none of that is true. I'm not saying Jesus was born on December 25th. I don't know when He was born specifically. It makes sense to me most that He would have been born in the fall around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. But He just as easily could have been born in December. If He was born in the fall, it means He was conceived around December 25th. So the end of December one way or another is somehow related to the birth of Christ and it's our culture to celebrate and it may have come from all kinds of stuff or whatever just like our marriage ceremonies do. You know those that would, would accuse us of committing sin against God because we use the word Christmas or maybe we've got a Christmas tree in our home are the same ones that would give their daughters away in marriage in a ceremony that involves a ring, a white dress, a preacher and a license. That all came straight from the Catholic Church. So be careful how you criticize other people when you're guilty of the same thing. I, I get so the hypocrisy about it's these young bucks that have no life experience to think they know everything. But anyway, this idea that shepherds wouldn't be in the fields in the winter is foolishness because the Levitical shepherds has a, had a year-round responsibility. That's like me saying that just because President President-elect Trump wants to repair relationships with Vladimir Putin, it automatically means that the Russians hacked the election and they're the reason why Trump was elected. That's the, kind of, that's the same type of a statement when someone says, there's no way shepherds could have been in the field. You just reveal your ignorance about the Scriptures. They would have been in the fields in winter. In fact, there's a sheep that's used in the Middle East. Most sheep give birth once a year in the spring. But there's sheep a sheep in the Middle East that's native to the land of Israel and other places nearby, the Awasi sheep, that's known to give birth in both the spring and in the autumn. If rams are introduced into the flock right after they finished weaning their spring uh, uh, litters, I don't know if the word litter litter wouldn't be right for sheep. I don't know what they would call it. Uh, But... Right after they've weaned their newborn lambs in the spring, if you introduce the rams, they'll get pregnant again and have, have another uh, cycle in the autumn. They're very fertile sheep. And they're native to the Middle East. And so there would be lambs having to be cared, of throughout, cared for throughout the year. And there would be temple sacrifices needed all year long. So these shepherds could have been out any time of the year. In fact, the Mishnas... The oral law speaks of shepherds in the fields 30 days before Passover. 30 days before Passover is in February, which is the rainiest and at times the coldest month in the land of Israel. And if you think people couldn't be tending flocks in the winter in Israel, you've never been into Israel. Okay? Israel's not Alaska in the winter, it's not here in the winter. It's not that cold. It it actually snows once in a while, but it's not that cold. We go to Israel in the winter and we camp out. And we see shepherds and sheep out in the fields. What a stupid statement people make sometimes without even thinking about it. But when we consider that there were shepherds near Bethlehem and that the Jews would not allow that to happen unless it involved the temple service, it's very evident that these shepherds were Levites. In fact, the word Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem over the years became synonymous with sacrificial lambs because they were kept nearby. It's like the city of Nazareth. When Philip went and told his brother Nathanael in the book of John that he had found Messiah, he was of Nazareth. Nathanael says, "said can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth became synonymous with rejected. It was a synonym. Rejected. Okay? Just like the word Hillary is synonymous with devil witch. I mean, you know, it just means that. So, when the Bible says when Joseph took Mary and the baby Jesus to live in Nazareth, and it says, as it was written in the prophets, he shall be a Nazarene. It never says specifically in the prophets He'll be a Nazarene. But He's referencing Isaiah 53. Messiah would be rejected. If you want me to sum up Isaiah 53 in one word, Jesus was a Nazarene. He was rejected. The city of Nazareth became associated with rejection. It meant rejected. Oh, you Nazarene, you rejected one. We do the same thing. Bethlehem became synonymous with sacrificial lambs. When you spoke of Bethlehem, the immediate thing that came to mind were the sacrificial flocks. Kind of like you say Asheville. Asheville means liberal. You say San Francisco. What immediately comes to your mind? Homo! It's the same thing with Bethlehem. It was associated with these Levitical flocks. So, in Zerubbabel, the governor's day, a type of Christ, God promised He would use and do mighty things. David via Solomon and Nathan Nathan crossed and and the tribe of Levi via Shimei came near. In Messiah, David and Nathan crossed and Mary and Joseph and the tribe of Levi came near. It's interesting that when Messiah's coming is announced in the Gospels, it's announced to four families. Joseph is told by the angel Gabriel in Matthew chapter 1. Messiah's coming is announced to the house of David. Mary, Gabriel visits her and announces the birth of Messiah in Luke chapter 1. Therefore, she represents the house of Nathan. Zacharias and Elizabeth the announcement of Messiah and His forerunner in Luke chapter 1 was made to the house of Levi. And then on the night Jesus Christ was born, there was an announcement to the Levitical shepherds, the family, I believe, of Shimei. Gershonites who cared for things related to the outside of the temple. Thus, these four houses who had the announcement of Messiah would ultimately reject what was announced to them, these four houses who were announced, to whom were announced Messiah and who would reject Him, one day in the future will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son when they realize their mistake and look upon Him whom they have pierced. Turn to Zechariah, back to where we began. Zechariah chapter 12 is the passage we looked at this morning. house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem would wake up and look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. There would be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Verse 12, the land will mourn every family apart. The family of the house of David, the family of the house of Nathan, the family of the house of Levi, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei. All the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. You know, only a third of the Jews living in the land by the end of the tribulation will have survived. And we know that that remnant includes these four houses that were connected to Messiah. They will mourn and realize who their Messiah was. Notwithstanding, look at the very first verse of the next chapter. In that day when there's this great mourning, there will be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. He that was pierced, he concerning whom these families mourn, is a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, who shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And thus... The house of David, the house of Nathan, and Levi, and Shimei can say with all of us and with the angels, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. When the angels described what the shepherds were to look for, what would identify the Messiah, they weren't told where to go. They weren't told where. Bethlehem was a bigger area. The area of Bethlehem, the urban area of Bethlehem in Jesus' day is, was a lot bigger than it is today in modern Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a big place. There were many places Messiah could be born. The angel didn't tell them they were in an inn or a stable. He just said that you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. This will be the sign. And then it tells us that despite no directions being given, that they went to Bethlehem, and they did it hastily, and they found Messiah pretty quick. How did they know where to go? You'll have to wait till Christmas for the answer. (laughs) Let's pray. Thank You, Father, for this day. We thank You for the Word that's been given this morning. We're thankful that You keep Your promises, Lord. And the same families who were significant in the days of Zerubbabel when you preserved Messianic seed in a time of captivity are the same families that touched the line of Messiah when He is born. And it's the same families that will be preserved, Lord, a miracle of history that You would preserve the Jewish people and their tribes, Lord. A miracle that ought to drive people to know that the God of Israel is real. Or those same families will remain throughout all of the time of tribulation. And there's coming a time when they will wake up and realize that Messiah, the one they have pierced, is the God of Israel and He's the Son that was given. And they'll mourn for Him as an only Son. And when they do, these families to whom the birth of Christ was announced, when they do, and when they call for Him, He will come, Lord. And when He comes, a fountain will be opened up for these, Lord, that remained. And all the Gentiles called by Your name will rule and reign in a messianic kingdom in which Messiah who was announced to shepherds truly will sit upon the throne of David. We thank You for the deep things of Your Word. Lord, it's a, the glory of God to conceal a matter and it's the glory of kings to search it out. And by studying Your Word, we can do that because we are kings. We're kings and priests, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation to bring forth the praise and glory of our God and of our Messiah. Thank you for this, Lord. I pray that you'd bless the food and our time of fellowship together. What a blessing that is in the church, that special program you've you've raised up to declare your name throughout the world and to provoke Israel to jealousy. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that you would continue to add the lost sheep of the house of Israel to the church. And that you would preserve your people and fulfill prophecy. And we look forward to the day when all of these things are fulfilled. In Jesus' name, amen.